Hello and welcome to episode 88 of Herpetological Highlights, the podcast all about reptile and amphibian science. My name's Tom Major and co-hosting with me as per is Ben Marshall. And today we've got an episode about some venomous snakes called crates. But before we get into all that, there's an interesting controversy going down in the field of ecology right now, which we thought it might be prudent to briefly chat about. Yeah, I suppose that the initial sort of caveat is that this is all, uh, you know, this is only me reading about stuff this morning, but it's been something that's been going on for a little bit of, little while, rumbling around in the background. It's been, it's been a big deal in other fields where, basically, it, it I see it as the culmination of a pretty shoddy uh system of incentives i suppose in in science slash i'm gonna say science but it's not science it's academia and it's an important distinction because academia is is you know this is a system at which science is sort of done not exclusively but largely and there is a i mean we, we were <sighs> there is a pressure to publish big highfalutin papers yeah yeah, oh, absolutely. And these, these big, fancy, uh, you know, groundbreaking findings, stuff that you you know you are pushed to be more certain in things to to sort of sell the story. These big journals that are sort of gatekeepers of, uh, I, I suppose, scientific publicity as well, but also tied to positions and uh, promotions and things along those lines. Yeah, it, there's a lot of... You know, I'm making some pretty broad generalizations here. It isn't a guarantee. Not all unis sort of do it. But there is a lot of weight attached to big... I mean, we're talking science. We're talking nature. We're talking cell. We're talking about journals that people would be familiar with. Yeah. Big the, journals. The big sort of household name journals are the ones which... Yeah, and like you say, a lot of academics, so we're talking about lecturers who have positions within universities, have pressure put on them by their superiors to have a certain amount of these kinds of publications over certain time frames, and they're judged based on whether or not they manage to accomplish that. Yeah, not, you know, there's an important distinction here. It's not the quality of the science that's being judged here. And there have been several studies looking at the, essentially the quality of science, not really the quality of the science, but the power of uh, inferences in these larger journals, i.e. how sure you can actually be that what you're seeing is a real effect, not some sort of spurious luck or whatever. And they're no better than other journals. So it's not like these are the biggest studies ever done or the best studies ever done. They tend to be the more exciting or on the more charismatic uh, species or something. Or yeah. You know, there's 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 biases tied in with sort of more human health aspects and things that are going to get attention, I suppose. Um, so it it isn't necessarily scientific rigor or or size of study. Um, that doesn't really create a great incentive system for science, is it? You're encouraged to do big fancy discovery science, not the sort of hard groundwork of checking something's reliable it doesn't incentivize replicating a study that's already been done which is a massively important uh, sort of pillar in science is if someone's done it once you should be able to do it and see the same thing happening completely independently yeah but there's no what why would a big fancy journal publish that it's already been shown it's a it's, a, it's not worth it it's not exciting so there is a problem with the incentives and what's actually good for science and other fields, um, in psychology, it's called the replication crisis. Although I think it should, I think that's a sort of a misnaming because I think it's a reproducibility crisis. Subtle distinction there, I won't bother getting into. But basically, there has been issues with, um, I suppose, not even issues. That's that's not the right term because the the that's implying that the original studies are wrong, and that's not really the case. It's just that they're given too much weight, and the weight to the sort of self-correcting aspects the studies come after, they're sort of downplayed. Um, but the point is, you get a big fancy study, all oh, big discovery, but then it might it's be later about found... Neanderthals, perhaps. That's the kind oh. of sexy thing that would make it in there, isn't it? 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's all, yeah, all sorts of stuff. There's a lot of psychology examples of, um, like, I, I don't have concrete ones to mind that I know have been shown to be. Yeah, well, don't worry about that. Let's dubious. talk about this. Um, let's talk about the fish thing. Yeah, right. The fish thing. So basically, there's everybody sort of knows, I think, that, okay, if it's happening in psychology with a sort of clean clinical setup that you've got more things under control, it's probably happening in ecology. Where nothing's under control. The animals are running free and doing whatever they like. Right, we've got a huge amount of random uh, variation and a huge number of environmental sort of covariates that can make things very hard to study. A lot of uncertainty, basically. Um, So basically the setup is ripe for people pulling out effects that then don't replicate or can't be repeated. Not through fault of the studies themselves, just through fault of the random variation... And an underappreciation of if you're finding it once, it doesn't mean you'll find it every single time sort of stuff. Uh, Underappreciation of uncertainty, I suppose. But people are incentivized by big journals to make it seem like, yeah, we found this cool thing and yeah, we're damn sure about it. So skip forward to, I suppose, now. There have been, um, I'm not sure if we talked about it on the podcast, but a little while ago there was a, I suppose scandal is the right word to do with spider behavioural data um, and basically Spidergate your Spidergate, Pruittgate where it was suggested that a large chunk of the data used to come up with some pretty pretty influential uh, animal behaviour studies based on I can't remember the type of spider some sort of social spider appeared to be appear to be fabricated or at least copied and pasted and and duplicated in a way which long story short a bunch of papers got retracted because people couldn't be confident in the data underlying those studies so was it a case of people just making stuff up um i'm not 100 percent sure on what the what the final findings were but it was looking more and more that way. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, you can get away with that sort of GCSE, but or maybe even A level, but not uh, not beyond really. Well, I think the concern was is you can get away with it. Yeah, that's and true, in fact yeah. you do get away with it for quite a long time. And the this this is I mean I always harp on about open data and stuff. This is one of the reasons I harp on about open data. You can't find these things if you can't look at the data to begin with, and those were found because of someone looking through publicly available data and then bouncing it round to another co-author on it to double-check things. So, super, super important. That one was was picked up because of uh, follow-on studies wanting to use the data, I think it was, certainly investigating it. This one with this... With, so we've got a whole other scenario occurring here with these fish... The going idea is that uh, quantities of CO2 in the sea can alter um, fish behaviour. Basically, the idea is that they become less less in tune, I suppose, so they're more vulnerable to predation and all sorts of things like that. With higher levels of CO2? Yes, yes. Uh, Higher levels of CO2 and the uh, ocean acidification that comes with that. Right on. The original idea is acidification messing with fishes, uh, like cognitive abilities. Sure. So studies done. Okay, fine. Uh, came up with this this finding, um, which has sort of set the, I suppose, set the tone for this stream of research for quite a while. And now we've got this scenario where another lab has come along and have attempted to replicate those findings. So completely independently, doing the same experiments, um, as similarly as they can, although it's worth highlighting that actually the way the methods were described originally might not have been as complete as they need to do, as need to be for a perfect replication. Right. Um, So that's... (laughs) That's a whole other issue about describing how you did something, but that, that can be dealt with. Um, basically they did a a bigger study and 
found that those effects of the ocean acidification, they, they couldn't find them. They, they didn't get them at all, and the acidification had no effect on the fish's behaviour. Um, so this is sort of prompting people to dig a little bit deeper into these, these sort of labs that were originally doing these, these fancy studies that found the very interesting, dramatic, oh my gosh, acidification's messing with fish minds and the sort of subsequent studies. And now it's looking like some of the data in the original paper might not really stand up to scrutiny either, that there may be some copy and pastes in the, uh, in the data set as well. As you'd expect, something like this, which is which is sort of one lab's word against another, things are getting a little bit nasty and a little bit personal in some ways. Um, but really, it's looking like those original studies aren't reliable and maybe shouldn't have even got through scrutiny to begin with. Um, so this this you reckon that this could have been picked up at the review stage had they been a bit more scrupulous. Uh, well, it's a bit hard to. It, it's you don't want really to say that, do you? Yeah. That because yeah. yeah, exactly. That's pushing the onus onto peer reviewers to catch this sort of stuff, which is really difficult. I mean, yeah, it um, is, and it shouldn't have to be something you're really. I mean, it should be in the back of your mind, I suppose. But like, you just wouldn't expect that that would be. You just wouldn't necessarily be looking out for that as a reviewer. That's not really what you're told to look for, is it? No, no, you you never. Well, you shouldn't be going into a paper thinking the worst of it for no. sure. Yeah, yeah, but um. You should be able to, I don't know, for, I feel like our sort of gold standard where we should be heading with peer reviews to be able to be given the data, the analysis code, be able to rerun the whole thing and see the results coming from the data, but also be able to independently run some stuff on that primary data. Primary being a really important word, not data that's been... Self-selected. Well, self-selected or summarised. I mean, I've been given... I've, been given data sets or, or <laughs> papers have said they've made data available and then you go look at the data and it's not from a let's say a movement ecology thing it's not the movement data of where this animal was on a given day in different time locations it's something like uh, movement per day or something like that which is a derived data set it's like fine sure. but if you did that summary wrong yeah. Then what you're, you know, you have to go back to. You want to see the GPS possible. coordinates, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the story short is these big journals pushing for big, uh, sort of fancy, exciting, headliney stuff, and I don't know. Certainly in ecology, I feel like a lot of the time that's not the case, and you can't be that sure with that stuff. But the environment is pushing people to, you know brush stuff under the carpet and in the worst case is fabricate data you know there, there is an immense pressure and i think it it translates to pretty dubious practice mm. you know that's you know this is probably a minority i'm sure it's a minority of people oh, yes. it's a tiny amount but the point is it shouldn't be anybody and the system shouldn't reward it no. The publishing system shouldn't reward it. I mean, okay, there are retractions happening now, but why are these retractions happening? Because somebody else had to go out of their way and do a three-year study completely independently to double-check it. <laughs> like, yeah. Incredible work from those guys, but my gosh. Well, that's an interesting and uh, evolving case. We'll have to keep an eye on that. Um, it is. I'll, I'll throw a link to the, the science article up on the uh, show notes. Um, people can see the, the whole study and... and things are going and it's this won't be the last one that's discovered you know, yeah we're, we're we're two we're two in now that have sort of caught enough attention to to get news coverage sort of things it won't be the last one <laughs> ecology really needs to up its game like 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 a lot of bits of science but big journal stuff those guys need to fix themselves. Funders need to deprioritize that stuff. You know, you need to rip out the incentives as well as making it harder to get away with. Yeah. With uh, dubious yeah. stuff. Yeah, I agree. If your science is robust and people can read it, you've done well. Yeah. So, right, let's get on to it. Crates. We're talking about crates. 
And this crate special episode is a Patreon episode for Richard Southworth. So big up, Richard. Thank you very much for the continued support. And if you would like to become a patron of ours yourselves, patreon.com slash herphighlights is where you want to be. Now, onto the crates. It's crate time, baby. Crates are... I mean, you know, universally considered to be pretty cool snakes. Uh, there's 15 species in the genus Bungaris, which are commonly referred to as crates. Uh, they're generally banded, but sometimes they have reduced bands. Sometimes their bands are just a sliver of dots. Sometimes they're plain in colour. And there's one called Bungaris flaviceps, the red-headed crate that has a red head and a red tail. Possibly one of the most beautiful snakes around. Oh, unbelievable. Bungaris yeah. flaviceps, give it a Google. Top tier. Top tier, yeah, that's like high-end snakery right there. Yeah, um, yeah. Crates are nocturnal, they lay eggs. Uh, they're medically significant because they possess very potent neurotoxic venoms. They're very um, medically important in Asia. Um, as a genus, they're really widely distributed. You get them from Iran and Pakistan all the way east to China, Indonesia. And uh, yeah, if you get bitten by a crate, this is how the... I read a paper on crate envenoming quickly, and... Uh, the symptoms are described as flaccid paralysis of skeletal muscles, which just sounds deeply unpleasant. Yeah, hellish. <laughs> yeah, so basically yeah. you get bit and you can't move. And you see that in the animals which the crates are consuming. They're like, they're very still despite being alive, which is brutal. So yeah, set the scene for a pretty cool group of snakes. We're going to be focusing on two species that are found in Thailand um, that we've both seen. And uh, yeah, like numerous friends. Um, have co-authored these papers right let's move on so so this first one is hodges et al 2021 brand new deadly dorm mate a case study on bungaris candidus living among a student dormitory with implications for human safety ecological solutions and evidence so this is bungaris candidus aka the malayan crate or actually i prefer the blue crate because um it doesn't just live in malaysia this study takes place in thailand but i would disagree with the blue crate because i actually don't find them to be blue so it's a difficult one. Yeah, I wouldn't call them blue. What's blue um, on that snake? They're black and white, or grey and white. They're like a steely grey white. Yeah, but maybe they maybe they vary because I mean they're relatively widely distributed, are they not? Yeah, they are. Yeah, but I've I've never seen a photo of one that I would say is blue. But nevertheless, not compared to other blue crates. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, yeah, this is a Malayan crate, Bungaris candidus, on a university campus in Thailand. Um, so they tracked the snake for 102 days and the snake, basically its MO is that its environment it happens to be a university campus, which is this kind of series of buildings um, interspersed with a bit of sort of degraded forest patches. Um, but, you know, a large area with many, many buildings and hundreds of students living on site, right? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the I suppose the way to describe the actual surroundings is you, it's a pretty dry arid setup most of the time but with quite intensive rainy seasons so yeah. there are a lot of runoff and drainage places too so okay you've got quite open grassy areas for the sake of people love grass and then you've got scrubby degraded tree stuff but also these systems for for high water flow when that happens too so a yeah, a mixed but changing thing, landscape. Dynamic. So, yeah. yeah, basically, and I have to say, the university has an amazing outdoor eatery as well. That's an important part of the <laughs> mentions. We ate lunch there and it was top notch. Uh, actually, ate lunch there was Kurt Barnes, one of the co-authors. So, here we go. One night, some students are just rolling around, you know, they're just moving around their dormitories as students are wont to do. And they spotted a snake eating another snake. Now, this is quite a common occurrence. Um, Cameron and the team actually removed 100 crates, 100 snakes during the um, course of this study. So somebody phoned up security, said, yo, there's a snake eating another snake. It turned out to be a crate eating a small banded kukri snake, Oligodon fasciolatus. And security arrived. Security told the researchers. Researchers came and got the snake, which was mid-swallowing this banded cucumber well, snake. Well, sec security got the snake, because all those guys are trained up now. Oh, right, that so security caught it, going, oh, handed no, it over. There is to, exactly. To security. security per perfectly trained to handle Big up handle security. Candidus. It's only because it's Candidus that those guys were called. Yeah. 
Oh, seen. So they only respond to calls of black and white stripy snakes. Well, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. To anybody. Yeah, yeah. But Whereas the research is really called when it's a something of interest. Yeah. Homie, I'm with you. Okay. So yeah, yeah. yeah, and actually, in the paper, there is a great picture of a security guard, very professionally handling the snake with a hook. Right? Is that this one? Yeah. 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 Awesome. Good. Good stuff. So, the snake's captured. It. As snakes tend to do, it regurgitates the snake, it's half eaten. So then, obviously, they don't want to leave it right next door to where the students are walking past. So they move it about 75 meters to a sort of slightly scrubbier area, put it down on the ground, put the kukri snake back next to it. Surprisingly, the crate goes straight back and eats the kukri snake before disappearing into the undergrowth. Yeah, uh, which is kind of lucky. <laughs> I mean, I would be amazed if that happened. Like... Snakes which have regurgitated are inherently stressed out, so for them to then turn back round upon being put on the floor and start eating again is a very quick turnaround in emotional state for that creature. Yeah, but also suggests a pretty damn good handling of the snake to, that it, it perhaps wasn't all that stressed. It really does, yeah, it really does. Yeah. I mean, they were obviously very gentle with it for it to just happily sit and eat in front of them after all that going on. So, yeah, and this was a snake which actually had a radio tag in it. So the researchers were actually already aware of the snake and... um after it had been put down and put in this long grass, they tracked it later on that night. And amazingly, it actually travelled all the way back 75 metres, pretty much to where they'd found it originally, right? Uh, yeah, and then some. I mean, it, it it's spends its life sort of bombing around this, this dormitory complex. Um, and Well, and, and a bit of forest next to it, but only really edge bits of that forest. It is It is a building loving candidas it would it would appear yeah when it goes to the forest you really just see it skirt around the edges it has like at least in their track locations it looks like it has sort of one foray deep into the forest mm -hmm. there i mean i'm saying deep it's like a few hundred meters maybe but yeah for the most part it's in and around if, the buildings no, i mean it's about 100 meters it's not even that it's it's not using a big area this is a pretty restricted little little snake zone for it yeah, so this snake's life is basically just like crawling around in the sort of little holes, nooks and crannies, pipe systems, drainage areas of this university campus, basically. Well, just this building. Yeah, exactly. It's It's got a very... I don't know if that's sort of suggesting that there's plenty of snakes around, so it's got plenty to eat, so it doesn't need to go that far. Or yeah. it's something to do with uh, shelter sites and the sort of lack of uh, vegetation surrounding. I mean, when it... I'm talking about these sort of open grassy areas. I'm talking very short grass. You lawns. Know, maintained grass. Yeah, lawns, but also lawns in a dry area, so they're not the yellow. brilliant. Yeah. 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 If you want a lawn, yeah, you got to water it. Lawns, such a waste of time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, that that is what's fascinating about this paper. The snake basically just lives its life alongside people living under buildings. And, you know, it's an incredibly venomous snake. If it were to bite someone, it would be a big, big deal. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly a medical emergency. And yet, you know, this snake's presumably been doing this for many years, looking at the size of it. Yeah, no, no, I think uh, I'm not sure how many, many years, but uh, there's no reason to think that it wouldn't. Well, number one, that it's unique. And number two, hasn't been living almost its entire life there. I don't. Hmm. Yeah. Crate was actually, uh, banded crate was actually the first snake I saw when I got to Thailand. It was outside of our bedroom just crawling around i was just like what? banded or malayan sorry malayan i this mm. this annoys me i always mistake that because they're all banded don't call something banded if all its congene is a banded as well it's stupid <laughs> <laughs> that's why his common names are dumb yeah. i mean yeah i'm talking about um candidas um, yeah 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 but yeah i mean just a fascinating case where this is an urban snake um yeah and it's just crawling around getting by eating other snakes on the university campus right not using a particularly massive area restricted to buildings uh the concern is when sort of when people are about versus when the snake's moving around because i mean a snake chilling under a building that's not a particular problem is it i mean that's no out of sight out of mind it's these scenarios where people are coming back slightly later after after dusk perhaps and They've snakes a couple also of beds, actively maybe. moving around yeah that's that's when you're it does say that there was one Activity night overlaps. yeah they did a couple of nights where they just followed the snake to see what it would get up to in the evening and one night they were just watching it and it was cruising around some walkways 
you know, near these buildings. And 12 people, 12 students walked past it. And uh, it, I think the paper says that they were all wearing flip flops, which is, you know, not standard. smart. It's standard, but it's not smart. And um, yeah, they were all, all a large quantity of them were looking at their phones while they were walking around. So, you know, they're walking around in the dark, pretty much with their phones mm-hmm. out, looking at their phones in flip flops. And there's just a crate bowling around on the floor. Yep. Which is uh, whew, makes me feel a little bit anxious, but um, yeah, that's that's what's going on. And uh, ironically, despite all having torches on their phones, none of them were on. So I think that's just uh, an example of if you you know you just need to tell people, don't you? And really impress upon them the importance of taking these precautions because if you get bitten by a crate, it's not an experience you're going to forget. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, if if we want to sort of transition off that, I'm sort of saying it's dusk and it's people at night needing to be worried concerned i suppose yeah because they are generally um, nocturnal that's what we think of them as anyway yeah exactly but so we jump jump over to the next note um another, another hodges led one uh diurnal observations of a malayan crate feeding inside a building in thailand uh this time in the journal of threat and taxa 2020 so last year different building this this is this is a different different building and actually these these ones are they have nice buildings actually because they've got these central areas uh with no roof and a sort of central garden and you've got the four four sides going around it um but this this is an observation of a, a candidus feeding Basically, prior to sundown, like it's evening time, right? No, no, it's actually in the morning they find it. First thing in the morning. So before the crate's going to bed, that's (laughs) that was (laughs) a flip in my mind. Someone's going to bed. People or snake? Yeah, basically the the crate's still up. Yeah. Or well, yeah, I mean that's what's interesting about this, right? So again, we're inside a building. Uh, Well, well, we're actually inside a building, not nearby to a building. Um, again, it was university security who alerted the researchers. Um, and like you said, yeah, they arrived at 7.15 in the morning and a big adult female, Candidus, was eating a, a golden tree snake, which is Chrysopelia ornata, in a hallway. And a lot of these buildings have these like nice garden atriums in the center, like a square patch of garden. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which they suggest is where these snakes may have come from. Um, and yeah, just this, you know, first thing in the morning, they see this crate on the floor eating a... Um, golden tree snake and they think these golden tree snakes come into the buildings because the geckos congregate inside them and obviously like these buildings are artificially lit so often there's lights at night the geckos come in and yeah they use those as a means of attracting insects which they then catch and eat um and so well the geckos are taking advantage of that anyway and so they think the golden tree snake comes in to eat those geckos followed by the crate going to eat the golden tree snake yeah, I mean these these Chrysopelias, these golden tree snakes. I feel like they come up a lot. I feel like they're a species which is pretty, uh, pretty resilient to human disturbance when there's a gecko meal about. I mean, I've I've seen them all over buildings. I know that they've been in multiple different uh, university buildings there on campus. They are pretty prolific. So I mean, it only makes sense. That where prey goes, predators gonna follow. Yeah. And if you've got a a setup of shelter sites nearby, i.e. little drainage things under the building, a nice central area of vegetation, yeah, why 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 can't a, a Bungaris come cruising in to, to feast on these chrysos? Why not? Yeah, absolutely, I agree. It's kinda cool though. I could see like, you know, you've you hear about these um you hear about various, I mean, we did that paper recently. That was a Mediterranean gecko, but becoming diurnal in response to a food source. I mean, reptiles can be flexible. So um, I think in this environment, though, there would be some disadvantages to the crate of becoming diurnal in so far as it's going to get spotted a lot more, which is probably its number one thing yep. to not do, given that it's a highly venomous snake surrounded by people. So I'd be surprised if this was kind of some indication that... Um, them sort of becoming more diurnal i imagine this is probably just a case where it was like last thing in the crates business of the day <laughs> and it just became light while it was eating the snake yeah i mean i think i i think you're right in in sort of pushing it that way because we have seen other i think there's a big review somewhere um i'll track it down and put it in the show notes uh for 
animals to tend towards more diurnal lifestyles when in closer proximity to people, certainly pushing towards times where people are less active to avoid uh, avoid contact. Mm. So I would suspect that Candidas, you know, that's reinforced. It's already nocturnal. It's probably being pushed to more strictly nocturnal behavior. But here we have an example where it isn't. Again, tying it back up to that previous one. This okay, it's easier to spot, therefore people are less likely to step on it, hopefully. But mm. also there's gonna be more people about earlier in the morning when there's actually daylight out. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Concerns both ways. Hmm. Yeah, so obviously this is a crate this this paper is an example of a crate being the predator. And then uh we've got another example of a crate being I suppose you could say kind of predated upon incidentally but this paper is entitled is by crane et al 2016 a report of a malayan crate bungaris candidus mortality as bycatch in a local fish trap from nakombachasima thailand published in tropical conservation science so um yeah funnel traps right they're familiar to most people i would suggest uh the sort of classic lobster pot design uh with the mm-hmm. cone-shaped entryways that animals just seemingly incapable of navigating out of um, well this one's a double a double cone design right yeah it is yeah so it's like very tricky it's it's literally a long cylinder with the yeah like the double funnel set up so the you place the trap it's a fish trap predominantly you place it into the current of the water the idea is that the fish which are passing through find their way to the funnel think they're getting through an obstacle and then they find themselves in the trap and then they find themselves in another funnel in the double trap there's no way out and uh many people who farm the land in thailand have these traps because there's lots of water around there's loads of like irrigation canals obviously if they're farming rice you know their entire crops submerged but regardless of whether they're farming rice or not they tend to have these like irrigation channels around their properties in order to provide water to whatever it is they're growing obviously if there's fish in these irrigation canals and ditches which there frequently is fish and eels people are going to try and catch them and eat them because it's you know a bit of extra food for the table and um, it's very common in Thai cuisine I think that people like to eat sort of fish that they've caught themselves and a lot of the farmers put these fish traps in the uh, irrigation ditches and what they'll do is they'll block up the the waterway as best they can and just leave the trap in the middle so that everything's sort of funneled into the trap so uh, this paper the setup for it is that um, there was a big male crate over a meter long and they'd put a radio transmitter in this snake and it was living in this kind of mixed agricultural landscape with lots of these irrigation ditches. And they'd only just put the radio transmitter in and they were kind of giving it this two week sort of semi cool off period where they weren't giving the snake too much attention. They were kind of just letting it heal up after its surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, before that period even ended, the snake disappeared. They couldn't find it on the telemetry receiver. Took a few days to find the snake, which unfortunately was found not only dead, but also headless outside the home of a local farmer, which obviously doesn't bode well. Um, so they knocked on the door, spoke to this guy, and he said the snake had been found decomposed in a, and drowned in a fish trap with its head stuck through the netting. So basically the snake had got caught in the fish trap, tried desperately to escape, um, tried to force its head out of the opening in order to get to air, subsequently drowned. And because of the state of decomposition, when the man arrived to check his trap, when he pulled the snake out, the head just came off. So the head was stuck left. Um, and yeah, that was how it happened. Um, they said also that there'd been some heavy rain. So like, obviously these irrigation channels kind of flood when it's, when there's more water in them and that might've actually served to kind of flush the snake down into this trap. Um, but yeah, essentially it's just a case of a snake being accidentally killed by a fish trap. I mean, we've seen a few examples of this. I mean, when I was in Thailand... Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, we've had multiple different species trapped in these in these fish traps. Um, I know in hydras get caught up in them. Uh, yeah. You found a king cobra in a large, to be fair, a more robust mm. fish trap than the one we're talking about here, which is essentially all netting. Yeah, yeah, that was um, that was crazy. It's a huge king cobra in the fish trap. I I'm think I've talked sure about this before on the podcast, but yeah, the Naja Naja species get caught up in them yeah. a lot. But I mean, what what do you expect if if you're trying to funnel swimming creatures into a funnel <laughs> in a in a limited irrigation canal that's that's what you're going to get yeah um 
I mean, I, I, we talked about the the King Cobra paper before, which has, I don't know, to me, relatively convincing arguments that these irrigation canals are sort of animal highways through an otherwise pretty nasty yeah. landscape, sparse, which, which really doesn't sparse. have cover for, for them. You know, you've got cassava fields, you've got cornfields, you've got things that maybe you would travel through, but you'd never live in if you were an animal. Or a human. Cassava fields, just yeah. the thought of a cassava field makes my mouth dry up. They're so barren, so dusty and dry. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it, it's it's not great. It's not great for the animals. It's I mean, it's fine for the people because they're making a living off it. So. <laughs> yeah, but uh, is what it is. the point is you have these irrigation canals that are sort of oases in an environment which isn't really geared uh, for animals at all. And then when you put something like a fish trap in them too, it makes sense that it's going to catch all sorts of bycatch as well. Mm. Um, yeah, the other snake we found was a massive um, dog-faced, no, puff-faced water snake, Homolopsis bucata huge mm, yeah snake. we didn't actually see that one in the fish trap but it was like unharmed it was like perfect so it looked like it drowned um but it was just on the bank next to a canal so uh, unconfirmed but there were fish traps around and there was just this perfect dead snake that showed no sign of trauma yeah. so we thought maybe that was another fish trap incident yeah i mean i think there's certainly more to be more to be found in this in this regard it's certainly um I don't know, these findings are pretty pretty worrying. Just one case study is, is not much to go on, but um it's not like it's the the first example of, of fish traps causing bycatch issues. Um I'd, yeah. Yeah, it's one of these. It's like you say though, it's like you say, like if you turn the rest of the habitat surrounding into inhospitable habitat and then you have these important areas and then you make those important areas extremely dangerous, it would just be nice right. if you could avoid doing that. And I think it's the kind of thing where, you know, yeah, you can talk to people about this. There must be a way to make traps safe for, safer for snakes. Um, but, you know, it's going to take a concerted effort at, because people want to catch these fish. And uh, Absolutely. it's awkward, isn't it? Because dealing with a venomous snake inside a trap that's, you know, presumably going to be pretty ticked off stressed out yeah it's not gonna be it's pleasant a... i wouldn't want to do that and i like handling snakes no, no so... i mean these traps aren't set up for safe removal of venomous snakes they're set up for catching fish yeah what you could do it's... i guess if you had a, a door a nice big door you could just open that on land and if a fish flap out it's not a problem but if the snake goes away the snake's gone yeah but i mean the other the other issue is with i mean you you hit a hit on it perfectly the idea that you rob Rob, I suppose is a loaded word, but animals' habitats are removed. They are making use of the patches that are available to them or what's sort of left over. You know, we're just talking about candidas making use of buildings, that's the same scenario. There's a lawn outside with nowhere for it to live. Where's it going to go? Well, the only place that's still got shelter and prey, a building. You then sort of, okay, now we've got a problem with, with uh, venomous snakes coming in contact with people. It, the solution can't simply be okay. We'll just snake-proof this building. Okay, where's the snake going to go next? Like, there needs to be solutions that are sympathetic to both parties, because otherwise you're just eliminating one of them. Yeah, exactly. And that just isn't gonna. That's not gonna fly. I mean, it, okay, restrict them all to the forest, but that's not. It's not really fair or viable, and then you've got an ecosystem that you're living in, which is which is massively uh... devoid of nature. Yeah, devoid of nature. Not it's not going to operate the way it should because mm. you're missing species. You do need solutions that are that take into account all parties, and the animals are an important party in that. Um, I certainly think the candida stuff with the buildings. You think, okay, well, we can't. You get rid of some shelter sites that they're going to make use of different ones. Maybe it's instead of trying to get rid of everything and just eliminate them from buildings, you want to sort of corral them, I suppose, is the mm. way I'm thinking about it. It's like, okay, we know they make use of certain types of corridors, certain types of shelter. We will set aside areas for that, but then make some areas very accessible, inaccessible to snakes, but some areas nicely accessible. So at least you know you're going through a snake zone, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. Just something that that works with the animal. 
mm. seems like the best solution for these things. I don't know. I'm just I'm I'm spitballing now, but it's you can't just say no and get rid of them from a landscape, especially like an agricultural landscape on this scale. That's not going to happen without really harming these animals. We're talking about this crate. It's living in a sort of a very um heavily modified landscape right it's got all of these challenges and obviously this one's not living anymore because it's succumbed to those challenges so i think let's look at two other papers where there's similar issues for the crates they're living in sort of disturbed or modified environments and you know trying to make the best of it really so the first one is um the movements and habitat preferences of a malayan crate obviously Bungaris candidus in an agrarian landscape this is by nirim et al uh, published in 2018 so, um, yeah, we're going to talk about that one. And we're also going to, uh, alongside, just briefly discuss another one, which is another species, but uh, similarly Bungaris. And that is Spatial Ecology Study Reveals Nest Attendance and Habitat Preference of Banded Crates. Again, uh, Nira Metal, Tyler and Co. And that was 2019, that one. So uh, I think these are two papers resulting from uh, Tyler's master's. Yeah. Yeah, certainly the uh, the candida stuff, uh, fasciata stuff. Less so the candida stuff. Never got enough candidas to really do anything until Cameron was doing his stuff on uh, campus at SUT. Gotcha. So, what's the take home message with both these? I mean, I feel like there's a pretty okay. It's, it's small samples. We're talking about a single candidas. Yeah, and three in an agriculture, and we're talking about three. Uh, fasciatus yeah. in agriculture, one male, two females. Um, but I think what's remarkably consistent with a lot of them is the reliance on like field margins, irrigation canals, all the little bits of sort of vegetation and uh, aquatic aquatic habitat in between all these these fields and actively used agricultural systems. With you know, this is rice paddies for the fasciatus and this is gosh what is it for the other one like corn and corn and sugarcane for the candidas i believe yeah it's like maize um there's a bit of a eucalyptus plantation which is obviously um, yep. trees that are harvested in like <coughs> three or five year cycles and yeah yep. cassava so you know generally speaking a pretty dry environment aside from those irrigation canals i mean those eucalyptus plantations it depends on the individual plantation but generally speaking they're spaced in rows and then you've got very little vegetation surrounding them it's kept quite clear for the most part um, yeah yeah and what we're seeing is they're crates almost exclusively restricting themselves to the bits in between these fields yeah i mean you look uh, at you look at that um fasciatus Bufa 01, which was a, a famous snake when we were in Thailand. That snake was pretty legendary, wasn't it? Um, Absolutely. That thing is a monster. I mean, I don't know. They didn't say how long it is in here, but my recollection of it is that it's about six feet long, thick as a bicep, <laughs> thick as a gladiator's <laughs> bicep. And uh, yeah, when you capture it, it spews stinking snake scales out of its cloaca as a means of defending itself and writhes around threatening to paralyze you with its venom like that, that snake was extreme it was a fantastic I mean, beast so so it weighed about one and a half kilos and it had an svl of 1.6 meters mate that snake is no joke that snake is no joke it is an absolute beast and it is lord of the irrigation canals although i suppose if it came across a three meter king cobra that would be an interesting showdown but nevertheless this snake's a bruiser a bruiser, and as you say, dom dominates these irrigation canals. Um, the movement data shows this very clear movement back and forth along along one of the canals, and it does seem that both its activity and its resting sites are connected to these sort of field margins and irrigation canals. Again, why is that? Mm, prey, mm, shelter sites, but um, very, very clear avoidance of open field stuff. Yeah. Um, and the same can be said for the two females, although to a slightly lesser extent because they're moving less than than the uh, the male. Um, but uh, also, the additional piece of information, their nest sites, also along a very large uh, field margin. One of the older field margins, although I'm not sure if it says in the paper went, but there was aspects of it that were being sort of turned over 
where they were ripping out trees and sort of re-engineering the banks of the field margin. Right. Um, it relatively close to where they were nesting. It didn't end up disturbing them, it appears, because we did have neonates coming out. What did they say? Fifteen neonates so, coming out of this like this nest complex where both these individuals were. So we're talking about a hole in the ground on the end of a field. And there's these yeah. two female Bungaris fasciatus, the black and yellow ones. Yep. In the same hole. Yep. And they're both sitting on their eggs. Presumably. Wow. Also there was a there was a Naja. Just there, cheekily. I, I don't know, pot- potentially what? nesting as well. Like oh. um is it is it in this one? They do mention that um Naya Siamensis guard their egg clutches for the complete time. Uh so presumably that's relevant. I remember them seeing Anaja on the camera traps that were fixed on the uh, the site entrance. Fair. It doesn't look like they mention it here. cannot remember for the life of me where it actually went in the hole. It was just hanging around outside. So um, what, what we can say definitively is that we've got two Bengarish fasciatus and a potential hanging on spitting cobra lurking around the place. Maybe incubating eggs. We don't know. <laughs> Yeah, but the cool thing is you've got these two boofers right next to each other, these two fasciatus right next to each other, um, sort of demonstrating very similar activity patterns as well, with this one peak of activity during the, the nesting period to possibly go out and forage and then come back. It sort of uh, looked to be connected to some rainfall, but yeah, pretty neat. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Or, or potentially co- cohabiting uh, females. mm I mean, we don't know. The, the thing is, we don't know how complex that uh, sort of burrow system was. I mean, the Bungaris didn't make it. It was presumably by some sort of burrowing mammal. Um, the mammals building, and the reptiles it, using. It being an older field margin as well, that might be a really complex and deep burrow for them to be living in. So, mm, yeah. But um, yeah, they saw fifteen babies in total emerge, didn't they? Yeah. Which must have been pretty nice. Presumably that was on the camera traps. Yes, yes, that's how they got all that, all on the camera traps. Really cool. Yeah. So within a two meter long strip of field margin, all these 15 babies came out over the course of a few days. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A couple on the first night, then three on the next night and two on the nights after that. So yeah, pretty cool. Um, they reckon that the first female laid her eggs first and her eggs came and hatched a little bit earlier than the second one yeah what like two days shorter yeah. incubation yeah but you know that's just another cool element because you just think of these snakes as these giant black and yellow killing machines but they actually have some pretty endearing <laughs> nest protective behaviors as well i i feel like the more we start digging into the actual sort of details of of these animals' lives, I think the more we're going to find along those lines. Yeah. The the idea of conceptualising everything as this pure competition, pure ruthlessness, is, uh, I feel, going to be eroded over time. There's a lot of... I think there's a lot of ruthlessness, though. Right, I agree, you though. Don't, you, I think you there's don't also... Go in, yeah. You're not meant to go in assuming that, right? And looking for that to the detriment of... You know, the way, how would you, <laughs> so here we have two Bungaris fasciatus living in this hole. Nice. Like, how do you, how do you want to try and understand that? Do you take it as a uh, pure, oh, cooperative uh, little communal, lovely, they both knew each other. They were living friendly together. They, they used each other's cues to find a good site and there they are. That's possibly Ooh, more like extreme. They, they're cooperating. There's, there's social interaction mm-hmm. yeah, there. Yeah. I think they might or the co- other extreme, one Bungaris found this hole, set it up. This interloper comes in, pushes them over to another bit of the burrow, bullies them the whole time in there, and then and then sort of is basically the implication that's being lazy. It wouldn't find its own nesting site, and it just used the cues from this other one to get a good nesting site and actually spent the rest of its time being lazy. Mm. yeah i mean the reality is you can't say either of those things because there's no camera in the hole but you're right yeah you're right you shouldn't just go around uh but it's expecting ruthlessness from snakes but still i mean yeah and also to be honest the only reason i've i've got such a sort of uh what's the word i guess um 
I guess respect for that snake is just because it it was pretty good at doing some like convincing defensive behaviors. But that's not it's, that's not how it's getting on in the wild. You know, that's it, the rest of the time. It's just going to be chilling out, trying to find things that are cylindrical to eat. It's not yeah. some ruffian. You're right. You are right. You are. But that's, uh, and I think it's actually I'm not, really cool. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that it, it's you've got to be aware of how we put our emotions onto these animals. Because you can, you can, depending on how you feel, you can twist that the other way. <laughs> well, I know. I just think about myself. When I'm down in my hole, if any interlopers come, it is, I consider it to be a sort of gross injustice, which must, I yeah. must defend the hole at all costs. Other, yeah. well, naturally, yeah, other yeah. beings behave differently. They're more welcoming to guests. But, but then to be fair, you've been brought up in a society that prior, prioritizes land ownership, right? True that. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so that's the nesting of the, uh, Bungaris. And was this the first time people had seen these snakes nesting in the wild? Well, probably not probably first not. time seen. Potentially first time reported in such detail. <laughs> you know what I'm... I'm trying to I be just, specific yeah, with I know, language. You, yeah, I know some, you're specific. A, a, a roll yeah, yeah. of the eyes. I'm just saying, a, Ben, sometimes it could come head. across as pedantry. You know. <laughs> <laughs> My work here is done, then. <laughs> So yeah, let's. Uh, we got one. What 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 was the case? I guess the Bengaris Candidus paper, which we're also simultaneously discussing. The main story behind that one is just like, again, a snake which exists in a totally um, agricultural environment. Um, yeah, basically they tracked it for sixty eight days in animal burrows during the day and emerging at night to forage, which you know is largely the case for the other crates we've seen. I mean, yeah. I guess yeah. its behavior is largely mirrored um, by the snake in the university campus insofar as hiding in a hole in the day, coming out at night to look for snakes and eels, yep. etc. Same things, same things Quite going small on. small areas too. Yeah. You know, you're talking about a hect- you know, hectare, a couple of hectares, not, not a great area. Yeah. But again, just tolerant, you know, the, the landscape's been altered dramatically and they know that they find a hole to live in in the day and they find some cylindrical stuff to eat at night. They can just about get by. It's not saying this is their ideal situation, but they're more than capable of living in these environments. Whether or not whether or not these are populations, for example, the university campus population, if that's a population that can exist, it subsist for, you know, 50 or 100 years, that's probably another matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, you... you... I know. I think I think you're touching on why it's so interesting. So there's another. I was going to say it'd be nice if we had some candida stuff from a natural environment to know how they are modifying their movement. Are they avoiding people? Stuff like that. Because there is that huge review uh, by Tucker on some. How many species did they look at? Something like fifty something species, I believe. Right. Uh, Fifty-seven species. A lot, lot of mammals and things. But the point is that animals that are in more human-dominated areas tend to move less, reduced movements. Whatever reason that is, be that uh, supplementary food sources, be that they're constantly spooked by people, things like that. I'm not sure it's really set in, set in stone, but there does seem to be, you know, we're talking about candidas in buildings, candidas in landscapes, their movements do seem to be restricted to certain landscape features. They're not using it all uniformly, yeah? Yeah. There is a paper for Candidus in Scarat, in the forest, way back in 20... Way back. Way back in the distance years of 2014. It feels a long time ago. That's when we were um, We were heading out there. Uh, year before. Year before, correct. Uh, by <laughs> Mohammedy. Et al. Um, and they, they were tracking one in the forest. They do seem to find that it moves more, in the sense that it's a bigger area used. Right. Um, but we're talking, you know, we're talking about we're comparing one snake from some agriculture area. We're talking about one snake from a forest. We're talking about, you know, a couple of snakes from a, a university campus. Initial initial suggestions, you know based on a sample size of as small as it possibly can be, is the one in the forest is moving more. Mm. On itself, not very convincing, but when positioned in the literature, which has done a lot more studies, you know, a lot more species, it seems like it would make a lot of sense. Mm. The King Cobra stuff seem to be moving less when they are outside of the forest. 
and that mm. was within individuals potentially too. You think of the Python stuff, which we haven't talked about in any detail yet, but that's they seem to have quite high site fidelity out in the agriculture as well. And I'm wondering whether we are slowly building towards what we see in mammals, in snakes, with this knowledge that as things get more human disturbed, these individuals are choosing to be less mobile because that's mm. either higher risk or they have supplementary food to make use of, therefore not having to move as much. Yeah, it just kind of seems like, when you talk about it like that, it kind of seems like there's this process by which animals which just can't survive among humans, be it because they there's not the, you know, maybe we don't attract the right food for them or they're just completely incapable of dealing with the high levels of disturbance and stress, uh, whatever it mm -hmm. might be, those animals get filtered out. They're going to die and they're not going to live in the human environments. The ones which can adapt to it end up perhaps with this situation you're describing where, be it because of more food or more predator, predator pressure, they're living in these slightly different sort of reduced yeah. home range situations. I mean, it, it stands to reason, like, if you put me in the woods and said, all right, mate, go and survive for yourself, find all your food, exist, <laughs> I'd probably not survive. But if I were to survive, I think my home range would be massive because I'd be looking for all the berry and fruit trees that I could possibly find yeah. to nibble on, right? If you put me in a city and you were like, mate, go and survive, I would go into the bins. I'd just find a bin outside a restaurant. I'd just stay put there and eat that. That'd be fine. I'd probably get fat and happy in the alleyway. Do you know what I mean? I wouldn't move around very much. Why should that be any different for wildlife? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. I think it's 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 got two sort of implications. One is are the Bungaris or or you know whatever species, whatever species that's surviving alongside humans, are they as healthy and as doing as well? Like, is this flexibility actually allowing to them to thrive, or yeah. are they just surviving? Because there's another. Um, Actually, again, in, in this area where the candidas are in, in Thailand, there was a study looking at toads in the forest versus toads in the agricultural areas. And the ones in the agriculture areas were a, had a poorer body condition than the ones in the forest, even though both were, you know, the, the toads were there, they were existing, they were surviving. I remember but that Are paper, they actually yeah. doing as well as they should be? Um, seemingly not. Seemingly not. Right. And I think that does apply to movement too. Okay, the animals are still there, they're still moving, but are they moving the way they should be? Are they actually... <laughs> you know, there's a very big difference between surviving and where you'd actually want to be. Mm. You know, you could you could survive living out of bins. Do you want to live out of bins? No. Not really. <laughs> Shaking my head. Yeah. No. Bin juice, not good. Very smelly. Nah, nah. So it, it's... To me, there's a really fascinating nuance here that goes far beyond animals surviving, and that is how... how not whether they survive, but how they survive. That's... Mm. We're, we're getting there, and I think the movement stuff's a really nice insight on that, and I think these notes and things are getting that way too. Mm, yeah, I like the idea of gathering data on the kind of... Um... What's that? What do they call that metric of uh, sort of health, which is... I mean, I guess it would be welfare, but you can, yeah. it's hard to use the term welfare when you're talking with animals because that conjures a very different Yeah, that conjures a whole setup, other... Yeah, and field, it pulls which... in all this... Yeah. What I'm thinking that, is I like... I want to study animal welfare. That's something else. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's more like... Um, what's that measure, though? That, that It's a metric which is tied into uh, body condition, right? Yeah, like, I just love. Yeah. There needs to be more studies comparing body condition of urban and rural animals. I think with with snakes and stuff for sure. I mean, it, it's getting there. There's there definitely are quite a few uh, that target it. Not that I'm pulling any to mind immediately, but I know I have read them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They cool. do exist, especially the urban stuff. I know there's some good studies out of Australia on urban snake condition versus rural snake. I believe. I'd like to get stuck into those on a podcast one time. We should. We should do do a do a sub sub uh, sub fatal costs. I th I thought you were going to say a suburban species special. Suburban species sub fatal special species. Suburban life. species sub fatal survival regardless special. Little snakes in the big city. Like it. All right. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh... yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so yeah, we're going to forgo the species of the bye week this week because uh, we've been talking for long enough. Ben, do you have any other business? I believe 
we had a reply on Twitter. Oh, yeah, uh, the, the, we were asking about uh, why people were farming, was it bullfrogs? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, we got some uh, some comments from Hedrigal. Yeah, so suggestions that it's, that it's selling farmed bullfrogs to Asian markets, potentially, um, or, to, or to captive snake folk. Seems perfectly reasonable. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I know a lot of these. Um, a lot of these frogs have sold for frogs' legs food. I think I said that in the last episode. Yeah, you so. did. Yeah, but just a little bit of supporting. Hmm, it's yeah, good. Probably that. So, thanks for that. Interesting point, Hedrigal makes bullfrog farming. A lot of the time, they just buy up wetlands that frogs happen to live on and harvest the frogs from the wetlands, or introducing them to wetlands and then harvesting them subsequently from there. Which is, uh, oh, don't like the yeah, sound of that. It's not, no, no, that's not, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, what, what's, what's, that's a bad idea. Yeah, but thank you, Hedrigal, for the uh, insight on that. Yes. Mucho abogado. So uh, I think uh, we should call it a day there. If you want to get, unless you've got any other business, I haven't got anything. Nope. No. Nope. Yeah, cool. All right, mate. Well, uh, yeah. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch, you can. We are at herpilights at gmail.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter. And we're trying to navigate Instagram. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that's about all there is, I think. So thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. But the story short is top tier journals trying to push for uh, Is somebody scratching around? Somebody is scratching around. <laughs> Hold on. You may enter. <laughs> hey cat. <laughs> Welcome cat.